Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from Washington, D.C. On the program today, it is day 11 of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The attacks on that country's people and its cities are escalating. I will ask Ukraine's foreign minister about his nation's urgent request for a no-fly zone and NATO's denial of that plea. Also, Putin and his cronies have quashed almost all that was left of the free press in Russia. I'll talk to a journalist whose radio was forced to shut down this week. And are sanctions working? I will ask the former Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers. But first, here's my take. The battle has been joined. Now all that remains to be seen is who will win. Vladimir Putin's naked aggression against Ukraine has triggered almost universal condemnation. Last week's vote in the UN General Assembly to denounce the invasion was 141 to 5, with 35 countries abstaining. President Biden has rallied not just the West, but much of the world. He has announced sanctions that are more far-reaching than any ever inflicted on a major economy. The results are already evident. Russia's stock market and the ruble are in tatters. But despite all this, economic sanctions have rarely forced a country to reverse path, let alone caused regime change. In the few cases where they do appear to have had some effect, South Africa with apartheid, Iran with its nuclear enrichment, sanctions were usually widely enforced and comprehensive. Because key countries like China, India, and the Gulf states are unlikely to boycott Russia, they will lack that long-term bite. There is one path to changing Putin's calculus, sanctioning Russia's oil and gas industry. This is Vladimir Putin's golden goose, the source of the state's wealth and the reason he might believe that he can weather any storm. So far, not only have these been left untouched, but the financial sanctions have been carefully designed to allow Russia room to continue to sell energy to the world. The conventional wisdom is that the Western world cannot sanction Russian energy because it will trigger an energy crisis along the lines of the 1970s, which would cause deep discontent at home. But the situation is not analogous to the 1970s at all. Today, the United States is the largest producer of oil and gas in the world. It can ramp up production and exports and help turn on spigots in other countries. Joe Biden is worried that he's going to look like Jimmy Carter when his power position is actually more like that of the king of Saudi Arabia. President Biden should announce that he is going to respond to this massive challenge to the international order by expediting as much production and export of American petroleum as possible to replace Russian energy. With natural gas, he should urge his regulators to facilitate production 
and he should help more with the financing of liquefied natural gas so that it can be sent to Europe quickly. He should also encourage countries like Japan and South Korea to divert more of their LNG to Europe. They have alternative energy sources. Some of this will take time to happen, but markets will react to the signals and to new supplies and prices will fall. But this will not be enough. President Biden should also help to unlock two large sources of oil that are currently not getting to the market fast enough or in sufficient quantities. He should suspend Donald Trump's sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. If possible, Washington should work with Iran to close the few remaining gaps and re-enter the nuclear deal, which would bring all of Iran's oil back on the market. And Biden should personally reach out to Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE, both of whom feel unloved by Washington these days, patch up relations with them and ask them to ramp up production, which the Gulf states can best do in the short term. I can hear all the objections from right and left. Let me address a few. Much of this oil and gas will simply substitute for banned Russian energy, so it's unlikely to cause net higher emissions. There is even an environmental benefit. U.S. gas leaks less methane than Russian gas, and U.S. oil production is also less environmentally harmful than Russian production. In many places, the increase in natural gas would mean countries like Germany could use less coal or dirtier fuel in nearly every way. In fact, the best way to cut carbon emissions in the short term with current technologies and at scale is to replace coal with natural gas. All of these measures have downsides, some symbolic, some real. But to govern is to choose, and to govern in a crisis is to make hard, painful choices. The country that has best understood this is Germany. It has suspended its Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, announced plans to build two new terminals to convert LNG into gas, and acknowledged that it might have to use more coal and to extend the life of its nuclear plants that were scheduled to be shuttered. These policies are coming from a coalition government whose second most important partner is the Green Party, which historically has been tenacious in its environmental goals. The Biden administration has said that the stakes could not be higher. And that's right. If Putin's aggression succeeds, we will live in a different world. So let us make sure that he does not. When Adolf Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, Winston Churchill, a lifelong rabid anti-communist, explained that if Hitler invaded hell, he, Churchill, would have found something nice to say about the devil. All we must do is take some steps to support all non-Russian energy. And that policy shift will become a deadly weapon that strikes at Vladimir Putin's real Achilles heel. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. The city of Mariupol in Ukraine's southeast, near the Russian border, is in a dire situation after enduring heavy attacks. The mayor says the city has no water, no power, and no ability even to recover the dead. It is just one of Ukraine's cities that is under brutal assault. The capital, Kyiv, has been spared the worst so far. 
But there's that 40-mile-long Russian convoy outside the city, and CNN teams have heard heavy shelling today to the city's west and northwest. Let us get the latest from CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, welcome. We've all been amazed by your reporting, and I want to ask you about those bridges we've we've seen. uh, You talk about being blown up by the Russians. Is it your sense that Russia is trying to lay siege to the city of Kiev, or is it actually preparing for an onslaught, for an an attack on Kiev itself? So, so just to be clear, Fareed, the bridge that you're talking about where we were yesterday, where civilians have been fleeing from Irpin, which is a Kiev suburb, it was blown up by the Ukrainians to stop Russian forces from coming into the city center. But what we're seeing today, uh, which is just extraordinary and horrific to see, is that as those civilians literally climb through the twisted metal and cross the water to get to relative safety, Russian forces have been shelling that area. Uh, my good friend Lindsay Adario, a photographer for the New York Times, was there at the moment that a mortar hit some 10 yards away from her, killing an entire family of three people, two of them children. These are innocent civilians, Farid, who are just trying to flee from this area, Irpin, where some of the hardest fighting has been. And what you're seeing today and what we're hearing today is a real intensification of Russia's efforts to try to push forward in the northwest and in the west of the city. Because you may remember that Russia uh, sent paratroopers into the Hostomol air base on day one of this war. It is now day 10, and they had not successfully been able to maintain control over that. They were not able to bring in transport planes to resupply them, also to connect with ground troops. So now what you're seeing is an all-out, very bloody battle to try to take control of that entire area and potentially then uh, to expand what you're seeing on the ground to encircle the entire city. We have also heard of a lot more activity, a lot more strikes in the south and southwest of the city. And so the fear is, as you said, that the plan may be to lay siege to the entire capital of Kiev. Keep in mind, this is a city of 2.9 million people. And if they are successfully able to cut off, there's one road in particular, the E-40, which is kind of a mainline artery from the far western and relatively safe city of Lviv to Kiev. If they're able to cut that off, the situation here in Kiev will dramatically deteriorate. It will become much harder to move supplies in, to move foodstuffs in, much more difficult to move out civilians. You mentioned Mariupol in the southeast. That is a desperate situation today. The International Red Cross saying they have not been able to open up that humanitarian convoy to allow some 200,000 desperate civilians who have been hunkered down under heavy fighting with no power, no heat, Uh, They have simply not been able to open it up. And Ukrainian authorities are blaming that on the Russian side, saying that Russian forces began shelling there again today. So what you're seeing is an increasingly bleak and dangerous picture for Ukrainian civilians as the fight continues, Fareed. Clarissa, stay safe. Fantastic reporting. When we come back... I'll talk to Ukraine's foreign minister about what his nation needs to fight back against the Russian Goliath.
President Zelensky has been blunt in asking for what he wants, a no-fly zone over Ukraine enforced by the United States and its allies. On Friday, after NATO rejected that request, he called out the alliance leaders saying all the people who will die from this day will also die because of you, because of your weakness. I'm joined now by Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, who met yesterday with Secretary of State Blinken at the border with Poland. Blinken said he was in awe of Kuleba. Uh, foreign minister, welcome. Let me ask you whether you feel that um, you understand NATO's point of view, which is that to have the United States and Russia in active military combat against each other with American planes shooting down Russian planes is too dangerous and could result in an escalation that nobody would want? Well, as we speak, Russian planes continue to bomb Ukrainian cities, kill Ukrainian civilians, including women and children. It's, uh, it's a disaster here, and we need to protect the skies. So we asked our partners two things. First, close the, uh, the air, close the, the airspace. And second, provide us with planes which we can fly and fight in the, in the air ourselves. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't received positive response to either of these questions, which effectively means that our pilots will continue to fight, but they, are, they will also be shut down. Russia will dominate the sky and that will help Russia to advance further, raising the cost of this war. Uh, on that second request, do you have any expectation that uh, that you will receive planes, was or was that also was that request also denied? Well, I have expectations on both uh, requests. It's uh, just a matter of time. When it comes to planes. Uh, I, we are being assured that talks are underway and uh, the solution is closed. The problem is that uh, we have no time for talks and, uh, and solutions. We need them now. As I said, thousands of children have been killed because, uh, as a result of uh, strikes from the air. Russia ruthlessly uses its air force to bombard uh, cities, critical infrastructure, destroys the supply of electricity and water to cities. Ukrainians are courageous people. We are fighting on the ground. We have pilots, aces, who have been fighting in the air. But uh, we need, we, we, our weakest kind of point is, is the airspace. So we need support there. Uh, what about uh, arms in general? Are there, uh, do you have enough javelins? Do you have enough stingers? What would you like to, to get more of? Well, supplies of uh, weapons, uh, like you mentioned, are underway. The question is how to ensure the sustainability uh, of these supplies. I received assurances from not only from the United States, but also from other countries that these supplies will continue. Uh, as I said before, we courageously fight on the ground. We uh, destroy a lot of, a lot of Russian uh, tanks and uh, armored vehicles. Uh, they have more, so they throw more and more on Ukraine. And I think it's not a military act, but simply a humanitarian act to support Ukraine's willingness and ability to fight by supplying us with all necessary weapons 
and imposing all necessary sanctions on Russia. Let me ask you, you mentioned negotiations. Uh, the Russians, uh, uh, what is the state of any kind of negotiation with the Russians? Uh, I'm puzzled whether they are at all serious because President Putin keeps talking about uh, what is essentially regime change in Ukraine. He keeps referring to President Zelensky and, and his government, including people like you as Nazis and drug dealers. That It does not seem to me that that is a that is a partner with whom he's negotiating seriously. Are the negotiations a complete ploy or can something real come from them? Indeed, it's absurd to call Ukrainians Nazis. Our president is of Jewish origin and uh, our uh, far-right far right political forces do not even make it to the parliament. They are marginalized in Ukraine. So this is a completely false narrative by President Putin. Um, we are very cautious about negotiations with, with Russia, but uh, there is no alternative to trying to find common ground and stop this war by the means of diplomacy. The recent experience, though, is that even when talks continue, even when talks are being held, uh, Russia continues its uh, attempts to advance in Ukraine, it continues shelling our cities, so we do not see a connection between holding the talks and uh, uh, putting Russian attacks on hold. Um, I think you can make your own conclusions from this fact. But, but, and in the, in the talks, are the Russian demands what we hear publicly, uh, which is, you know, essentially recognize Crimea, recognize all of Donbass, uh, demilitarized de state, n neutral, pledge to never be part of NATO, which, which are Ru Russia's maximalist demands. Yes, yes, that's, that's what they repeat in the talks. But again, uh, we have to continue, we have to continue talking uh, while we also continue fighting, fighting for our land. Stay with us. We will be back with Ukraine's foreign minister. I'm going to ask the foreign minister what you can do if you want to help Ukraine when we come back. And we are back with Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba. Foreign Minister, um, you must have seen your counterpart at the European Union, the European Union's foreign policy uh, chief, suggested that China mediate uh, between Russia and Ukraine. What do you think of that proposal? Well, we welcome any attempt to mediate uh, and help us uh, stop this mad war launched by President Putin. I spoke myself with uh, the Chinese foreign minister. He assured me that um, China is not interested in this war and is ready to make a contribution to putting an end to it through diplomacy. So we will welcome this effort. Uh, however, again, it was President Putin who launched this war and it's he who has to stop. Ukraine is not making any compromises on the issues of its territorial integrity. Is it your sense that the Chinese might pressure the Russians to acknowledge the territorial integrity of Ukraine? It's hard to say. Uh, Chinese uh, diplomacy works according to its own mechanics. 
and uh, I'm not aware of uh, any uh, follow-up contacts between China and Moscow after I spoke with uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister and after Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken spoke with him. But uh, again, we can only we can only count that this contact do take place, and China is uh, making is, is making its efforts to stop the war. Let me ask you about uh, you know getting to what uh, people can do uh, if they want to help. You have received a, a large number of foreign fighters of people volunteering. How large is that number, and is it growing? Yeah, this number is around 20,000 now. Uh, they come from uh, many European countries, mostly. Uh, you know, many people in the world uh, hated Russia and what it was doing in recent years, but no one dared to uh, openly oppose and fight them. So when people saw that Ukrainians are fighting, that Ukrainians are not giving up, many felt motivated to join the fight and to bring Russia to an account for many, many things that it has done in recent years in different countries. So the wish to fight is, is, uh, is something that we can understand. But uh, most importantly, we need sustainable political, economic and military support coming from uh, as many countries as possible. And we count on the U.S. leadership in this exercise with special focus on air defense. This is really the key to uh, the price that uh, we are paying for, the, for, the, for, for this war. I have no doubt that we will prevail because we fight for the right cause on the right side of history on our land, but it's a question of cost. If the West, if the United States and others do not help us to solve the air defense problem, the costs will be much, much more higher, and we will have our country destructed, destroyed by air raids. We have much, many more civilians killed. And you know, sometimes every year we uh, we we repeat these words: never again. In Ukraine, in Europe, in, the, in North America, to commemorate the Great War. This is exactly the time when everyone, every politician, has to prove that he or she is able to, make, to take tough, difficult, but responsible decisions in order to stop the war and not to say after the war, never again. Let me ask you about another piece of news. Uh, uh, Shell, the, the oil company, uh, announced that it was buying Russian oil but that it would, uh, for its refineries, but that would, it would donate the profits from the, this oil to some kind of Ukrainian cause. They didn't specify what. Is that appropriate in your view? What would be your message to Shell? Stop buying Russian oil. And this goes not only to Shell, but also to other companies. Um, some tough measures were imposed in Russia, but we all know that their best, their biggest revenues come from trade in oil and gas. And uh, today, Russian oil and gas smells with Ukrainian smells Ukrainian blood. So uh, instead of donating money to us, mm -hmm. just stop buying it. This this is the best thing you can do. And all Western companies must withdraw from uh, from Russia. On, again, not on commercial or political, but on humanitarian grounds. We were 
upset to hear that companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's remain in Russia and continue providing providing their products. It's it's simply against the basic principles of morale uh, to continue working in Russia and making money there. This money has soaked with Ukrainian blood. Foreign Minister, it's a pleasure to have you on. I think we, we, we got from you what you would want ordinary people to do, petition their governments on air defenses, on weapons, uh, petition companies not to buy Russian oil. Um, you're a brave man, and it's an honor to have you on, sir. Thank you, sir. Next on GPS, Vladimir Putin and his lawmakers have all but quashed Russia's free press. I will talk to a brave Russian journalist whose station had to stop broadcasting this week. We will be back in a moment. No to war. Those were the final words of the final broadcast of Russia's TV reign. On Thursday, the news outlet shut down due to the government's attack on free press in the country. Those include the threat of 15 years in jail for telling the truth about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Joining me now is TV Reign's news director, Ekaterina Korikatsi. Um, Ekaterina, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. What we are trying to understand, all of us, is what, uh, what do the Russian people know about what is going on in this war? What, what is your sense, if, if, if one were trying to characterize, what, is the, what does this look like to average Russians? There are so different Russians, and first of all, thank you so much, Farid. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, there are so many different uh, views, and I think that the society in Russia is divided terribly. One part of Russian society believes uh, the propaganda machine, which tells them every day, 24-7, shouting from the screens of televisions that Russia is under the threat of NATO, that NATO is right um, behind the corner and NATO rockets are going to, you know, to be uh, on, uh, uh, I don't know, Red Square and someone is coming for Vladimir Putin who helps people to be free and proud and so on and so forth. But another part of Russian society, this, these people are the viewers of TV Rain. These viewers are readers of uh, in the few independent media outlets which were shut down just recently during these days. And I want to tell you that um, after the war has started uh, on 24th of uh, February, we have had the absolutely amazing viewers, I mean, views, like 24, 25 million views per day only on YouTube. It means that there are many people, a lot of people, millions of Russians, who understand that something terrible is going on and who understand that they need these alternative sources of information because they feel that this is a disaster, this is a catastrophe that has come to their homes and the whole world is broken for them, for us, for me personally as well. How do Russians, I mean, again, I know I'm asking you to big generalizations, but how do they feel about Ukraine and Ukrainians? Well, uh, historically, Ukraine has been the closest friend and closest, I would say, even brother or sister uh, of Russia. And, uh, you know, languages are are not the same, but they sound similar. And, uh, you know, the friendship was real 
like the friendship with Georgians, for example, with Belarusians and so on. But um, a lot of Russians, again, this is a very divided society, Farid. You need to understand, you cannot say that, and you cannot say it in percentage, for example, because there is no sociology in Russia. It, dictatorship cannot give you an opportunity to understand how many people do believe the propaganda and how many do believe that Ukrainians have to be inside of Russia and how many think that Ukrainians have their own opportunity and right to decide for themselves. There are a lot of people in Russia who understood after these terrible things have started that, um, that they need to support Ukrainians, that they have this right to decide that this European way of development is their future. And a lot of Russians want this future for themselves as well. Uh, I'm getting messages, emails, uh, you know, uh, calls from different viewers of TV Rain, uh, different viewers for, of, of, you know, my colleagues of my program, my show and, and other programs on TV Rain saying thank you for doing this and hoping that, you know, we will try to, to cover this, this terrible war from anywhere. I don't know from where. Um, d d is is Vladimir Putin secure? Um, are there people within his circle? Is the military have any power? Could you imagine some situation where people pressure him to change his policies? It's hard to say because we cannot uh, be sure about how many people is under strict control of President Putin. All we know is that there is a liberal branch, so-called liberal branch, in the administration of the president, in the government uh, as a whole. People who understand that this is a catastrophe that has come because of one person and his ambitions uh, to, you know, to grow back, to build back this empire and, uh, and to, you know, get the whole Russian territories back under his power. And uh, we don't understand uh, what these people are planning, actually, this liberal branch. What can they do? And is there any opportunity for them to change the situation? Um, we understand that these people are not happy about uh, being isolated from the global world because these people were actually very much used to traveling, to communicating with their American and European partners. These people were used to big money. You know, it's not only ministers or officials. It's also, Russian oligarchs, businessmen, people from inner circle, friends of Vladimir Putin, they are under sanctions right now and they are not happy with this. They need to say goodbye to the whole lifestyle that they had. But now Vladimir Putin has this full disclosure. You know, there's no, uh, there's no, this, you know, trying to show himself to the world as, as a person who may, may be interested in democracy, as a person who still has some kind of freedoms in Russia as a person who can still be flexible in some ways. There is no flexibility at all. This is, this is the end of Russia that we have known before. This is the end of everything that we were used to. This person, Vladimir Putin, has decided to kill everything, to destroy everything that was free and independent in Russian Federation. It was not, it was not a democracy before. You know that, of course, Farid. But now it's like, you, I mean, this is not Russia anymore. But we have never seen anything like that during the history. And I'm sure that someone will fight this. But I don't know uh, whether this people or this person or I don't know how many people uh, uh, would they be successful? It's hard to say. 
Very quickly, um, do you believe that uh, this could be the end for Putin in some way? Uh, well, you know, I, I will give you an honest answer. I, I really don't know. I, I don't understand what's going on inside of Kremlin's corridors and, and offices. The only thing I know is I'm not alone here out of the country. I have a lot of brave interesting young people around me, my colleagues, my friends, journalists, people who think, people who are ready to fight for the freedom in Russia. I'm sorry for this pathos, but this is the truth. And we will, we will do everything we can. We are strong, actually. Ekaterina, what a pleasure to, to talk to you. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder that Russia itself is a, is a complex and fascinating country, and we should Thank learn you. more about Thank it. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Next on GPS, are the sanctions working? Larry Summers will tell us. The United States, Europe and many other countries have blanketed Russia with sanctions. Targets include Putin, Foreign Minister Lavrov, other top officials and many of the oligarchs who have been enriched by Putin and his policies. Many Russian banks have been taken out of SWIFT and thus can no longer complete international transactions. The West has taken a big chunk of Putin's rainy day fund at the Russian Central Bank, making it inaccessible. The list goes on. But is it enough? Larry Summers joins me now. He was the Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration. Larry, um, looking at the situation, and if you think of it in terms of a kind of economic war, um, how are we doing and what should we do? We're winning. We're doing very well. We have inflicted more damage more quickly with more unity on our side on the Russian economy than almost anyone, I think, would have uh, expected. There's more we can uh, do. There's more that can be done to cut off Russian financial institutions and, of course, uh, critically, there's more that can be done to cut off Russian energy production. And I think we very much need to keep those uh, threats uh, in reserve so as to be able to exercise uh, maximum uh, leverage. Now, the challenge for us is to bring these early successes to some kind of uh, conclusion. And uh, that's a very dangerous and uh, complex uh, thing. But I think one has to give the Biden administration enormous credit for what's been done uh, so far. I think the concept of escalating sanctions over time never firing your last and most brutal uh, bullet so as to uh, maintain leverage is a very good one. I so, worry, slight, I worry mm -hmm. slightly, Fareed, when I hear us protest a bit too vigorously that this isn't gonna interfere with gasoline prices uh, too much, because I think ultimately if the price of combating tyranny is a period of much higher gas prices, that's a price we need to be prepared to pay as a country. But I think we'll get there if we need to. 
economic power, economic sanctions uh, rarely uh, have the effect of completely transforming a country's policy or triggering regime change. How should we think about this issue of economic warfare? Can it really make Putin stop what he seems determined to do, which is to take control of all of Ukraine? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think uh, anybody knows. It's doing much more damage much more quickly than we would have expected. And, you know, Fareed, the other side of what makes this case exceptional is important. Russia is a much more deeply integrated economy into the world than Cuba ever was or than Iran at the time of the hostages uh, was. And that means that sanctions can do much more to disrupt what was otherwise going on than uh, happened. We've never thought about doing sanctions to a country that had hundreds of billions of dollars in reserves before. And the ability to basically freeze a central bank with hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves is a kind of leverage that we've never thought about having uh, before. So I'm optimistic uh, that this uh, can have uh, very important uh, effects. We may find it necessary or desirable to cut off their ability to export oil and uh, natural gas. But I think the approach that Biden has followed, which is start with the things that do a lot of damage to them and very little damage to us, and over time escalate, I think that has been the right kind of uh, approach. What about the cost uh, to the global economy and the American economy? President Biden said in his uh, uh, State of the Union that his number one priority was now combating inflation. You've been perhaps more prescient about that inflation than, than anyone. Um, what, what, what is it going to look like um, if, this, if things continue as they are? Will there be more inflation? And is the Biden administration adopting the right strategy to deal with that inflation? Inflation is a serious problem. This will make it worse. But preserving world order is much more fundamental and much more important than an extra percentage point or an extra three percentage point on the CPI uh, over some interval. So let's have our priorities straight. Historians 50 years from now might remember the events of this week in Ukraine. They will not remember the inflation statistics over the next uh, six months. I'm an economist, but I'm a political economist, and I recognize what's most fundamentally important. Larry Summers, good to have you on. Thank you. I want to thank you for being part of my program this week, and I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.